So Psalm 34, that's our text. Psalm 34. The topic there, we are told that this is a Psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech. And so the title of our message is, no one knows what it's like to be the madman. Who? Yeah. <laughs> That's an old Who song. How many people know who the Who are? All right, most of you. Okay. Father, thank you this morning for our gathering together in your name. Appreciate everyone watching online. Lord, I pray that uh, the things that we share would uh, be rich and full with the glory of God, the mercy of God, and the grace of God. This is a psalm I might have chosen anyway for today, Lord, even though it's the next psalm on our list. It's so pertinent to the times in which we live. I pray that we would receive all good things from you. Pray it in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Amen. Dustin Hoffman for Rain Man. Jeffrey Rush for Shine. Edward Norton for Primal Fear. Robin Williams, the Fisher King. Brad Pitt for 12 Monkeys. Billy Bob Thornton for Sling Blade. It's a partial list of actors who were either nominated for or who won an Academy Award for their portrayal of a mentally challenged or mentally ill person. We don't normally think of King David as an actor. That's too bad because he was a really good one. He once won the Abimelech Award for portraying a madman. The introduction to Psalm 34 reads like this, a Psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech who drove him away and he departed. By the way, Abimelech is a dynastic title like Pharaoh. The Abimelech the Psalm refers to is a guy named Ashish. And so let me read part of the account from 1 Samuel chapter 21. Then David arose and fled that day from before Saul and went to Ashish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Ashish said to him, is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Now David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Ashish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them, pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the doors of the gate, and let saliva fall down on his beard. Then Ashish said to his servants, look, you see, this man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of madmen that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? An award-winning performance for sure, but a sad one spiritually. It seems to have been birthed out of fear. When a believer gives in to fear, he or she is acting like a madman. We may not foam at the mouth, but heaven sees us as forgetting to fear only God and crazy to fear man. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, you can be delivered from your fears. And number two, you can deliver hope to those who fear. Let's take a look at our own deliverance in verses one through 10. Now, commentators are split as to whether or not David's madman act was his own desperate idea or God's unusual strategy. I'm saying it was David's fail because of fear, since the message of Psalm 34 is him being delivered from fear. And so we begin in verse one. Uh, Let's start with the actual text. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Anybody remember that song? Who remembers the old Maranatha song that goes that way? Anybody? I will bless the Lord at all times. 
His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in thee. Lord, the humble shall hear thereof and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivers me from all of my fears. All right. So that's verses one through three. And that's the original tune, by the way. But anyway, David was certainly addressing saints in every generation, but he did, however, have a live audience for whom he performed this psalm. He said, let us exalt his name together. In the sequel to his madman performance, David played a captain in a rebel alliance. Here it is from 1 Samuel 21, 1 and 2, right after what we read previously about him being mad, acting mad. David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adjalam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down, to their, uh, down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. These downtrodden men were the humble who heard of it and were glad. It was they who magnified the Lord together with David. This psalm was one of their anthems. And so think of David singing this and presenting this to these individuals. Then in verse 4, I sought the Lord, and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. This verse should be underlined, highlighted, uh, written about in your Bible. David just gave us the secret of being delivered from fear. I sought the Lord and he heard me and he delivered me from all my fears. That's it. Nothing complicated, simple, not always simple to do because we don't always believe God. But David would say, if you want to be free of fear, seek the Lord and he will hear you and he will deliver you. What might you say to the Lord as you seek him? Psalm 57 records what David said. Oh, what's interesting about this, I'm sure you've heard it say, if you've been around for a while and listened to Bible teachers, I'm sure you've heard or, have, or read where it said that the Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. And sometimes that doesn't make any sense, but this is a case where it does because as we're reading Psalm 34, you also really need to read 1 Samuel in the pertinent sections. And there are other Psalms that relate to this incident as well. One of them is Psalm 57. And when you read them all together, the Bible comments on itself and you get a bigger picture of what's really going on. And so Psalm 57 verse 1, uh, it says it's when David fled from Saul into the cave. And he said, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you. And in the shadow of your wings, I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed by. I will cry out to God most high, to God who performs all things for me. He shall send from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. Quick summary of that psalm. David came to his spiritual senses. He remembered God's promises of mercy and refuge and providence. He believed God. David remembered who he was. He had been anointed the next king of Israel. Though outwardly at the time that seemed preposterous because King Saul was seeking his life and he had now put his hands or his life in the hands of the king of Gath, it must occur. 
And so I believe that David simply just returned to a place of believing God and knowing who he was and, and realized that he didn't have to act like a madman to get out of that situation. The Lord would have taken care of it. Are you in Christ? Then just believe God. Remember who you are. You are blood-bought beloved of God. You're saved. You're being saved day by day as the Holy Spirit works in you. You'll be ultimately saved when you're resurrected or raptured. You are a recipient of God, the Holy Spirit. You are his temple individually. We are his temple collectively. Those kinds of thoughts and all the other thoughts you might have about who you are in Christ, in his providence, in his protection, in his love, should be enough to conquer your fear of any earthly situation or any earthly man and bring you back into the fear of God. Verse five, they looked to him and were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. This is so beautiful. They refers to the 400 men who rallied to David in debt, distressed, discontent, shattered lives, probably by their own bad decisions. You know, the Bible uh, doesn't say God helps those who helps themselves. God helps those who can't help themselves. We have kind of a mentality, uh, you know, I don't want to get too deep into it or accuse anybody of anything, but I know in my own life, I, I still think that way. I think, well, that person's a bum or that person, you know, didn't try very hard or that's your own fault or you made poor decisions. And some of that may even be true. These guys had no hope of changing their circumstances by hard work, outcasts, all of them, yet they would be received by David and thus by the Lord. They knew somehow that they could come to the Lord through David's intercession and that God would receive them. David didn't post on Craigslist looking for mercenaries. This was God. I say the Holy Spirit prompted these men to go out to David. They trusted in that. We often talk about the difference between the Holy Spirit's ministry in the Old Testament and in the New. In the New Testament, we, I, we enjoy the the being baptized into the body of Christ and having the spirit permanently indwell us. And that's something the Old Testament believers did not have. Uh, we read of cases where the spirit would come upon them for a time and then leave them. But it doesn't mean the Holy Spirit had no relationship to believers in the Old Testament. And here what I see happening, you have to, these 400 guys, they weren't a, a group before they came to David. They were just 400 guys from all over the kingdom. They didn't know each other. They didn't work with each other. They, uh, you know, they, they were just men in all these different situations. But somehow, 400 of them were prompted by the Holy Spirit to seek out David, a fugitive, in this cave. And they were comforted that it would be all right and that it would be good for them. And so God is beautifully moving here. Part of God's deliverance of David was to immediately grant him a ministry. He remained a fugitive on the run in danger, but he could thrive by serving these men. And, and really, he was their captain as a warrior and as a, uh, a fighter. But in reality, he was discipling them. David, the man after God's own heart, was, a, was their uh, spiritual leader as well, teaching them about the love of the Lord. Now, I digressed. I said something was beautiful. What is it? David's men looked to God, and it says their faces were radiant, doesn't mean they were literally radiant like night lights glowing at night in the cave or like Moses when he came down from meeting God on the mount in the book of Exodus. He actually glowed. 
It's a way of saying that they reflected the glory of the Lord. Something like we read about ourselves where it says, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord. So the idea is that as you look into the Lord's face through his word, uh, you bring out more of his glory. Sometimes you, you do look different to people. I had a, a kind of a weird experience right after I first got saved. I was coming out of St. Bernardine's Hospital in uh, San Bernardino, probably visiting Pam when she had Mary. Um, oh, no, that's not true. She didn't have Mary. I don't know why I was in the hospital uh, visiting somebody. And uh, a friend of mine that I'd known for years, Rick Lazar Jr., was walking by, and he, we stopped to talk, and he kept looking at me really weird. Kind of like, you know, I thought maybe something was hanging out of my nose or <laughs> broccoli, you know, in my teeth or something like that. And finally he said, you know, you look weird. You look kind of glowing. And I thought, uh, I said, well, I, I became a Christian. I accepted the Lord. And, and I mean, he actually could, could see that. That's the only time that's ever happened to me. And I'm certainly not, now I look like I have rosacea. But anyway, uh, it's interesting. It can happen. We talk about pregnant women having a glow, do we not? And, and it's true. You can, there's a glow. And I did this first service and I, I thought I shouldn't have, but it turned out good. And I'll tell you why. I gave some advice for service regarding pregnant women. Don't ever, ever ask a woman how far along she is because 30% of the women you ask are not pregnant. I know people who've made that mistake and they've regretted it. But I mentioned that first service and then on the chat that I was talking about, one of our sisters uh, revealed that she's pregnant. And so that was her first reveal, I think, to the church. And so it was pretty cool. So. We're a good group. Uh, let's see. This poor man cried out, verse 6, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. David was referring to himself. He was the poor man. While he was quite literally poor, he most certainly was talking about his spiritual condition, which was fear. Compare his walk some years earlier. As a teenager, he was incredulous that no Israelite would accept the giant's challenge to one-on-one -on -one combat. So he did, and he killed Goliath easily in the Lord's strength. Little teenage David against a maybe 12 or 13-foot giant, a Nephilim. And he knocked him out the first blow and took his sword and cut his head off. By the way, something I didn't tell you, when David fled to Gath, and was before King Ashish, he brought Goliath's sword with him. And so here he was in Gath, the city of Goliath, with Goliath's sword, reminding everyone he had killed Goliath and now acting like a madman because he was so afraid of the situation that he was in, how far he had fallen. But David said God saved him out of all his troubles. He was still a wanted, hunted man with Boba Fett seeking the bounty. We need a more expansive definition of deliverance. It's an oft-used, perhaps overused explanation, but that's only because it's a good one, and it's this. God is faithful and will deliver you from your troubles or through your troubles. Either he will just take the trouble away or he will bring you through it with new insight into who you are and what you're capable of in his strength. In the Tom Hanks film, Castaway, he preserved a FedEx package through his ordeal, eventually delivering it once he was rescued. 
in the movie, it was symbolic of his hope that he would be delivered. And so the package was delivered, but it was through his trouble, not from his trouble. By the way, there's a lot of speculation on the contents of that package. We're not told in the movie, but I've decided that they should add a stinger during the credits where they open the package and they find that it was a fully charged satellite phone. Wouldn't that be great? Your hope is that one day you'll be delivered from all your trouble. In the meantime, most of the time, like David, you're going to be delivered through it with the Lord's presence. The angel of the Lord encamps around all those who fear him and delivers them. The angel of the Lord is an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. Don't be confused by the title angel. It means ambassador or messenger. Jesus is no angel, as the letter to the Hebrew Christians makes clear. He comes to Old Testament saints as heaven's ambassador, delivering his message to them in person. I wonder if David saw him or if he just knew that there were these angelic presences around him. Now here it sounds like David had forgotten to factor in this unseen realm. Once his fears were overcome and he feared only the Lord, he was reminded of the mighty resources that were deployed on behalf of the saints. And so, again, I don't know how he could have gotten out of his predicament in Ashish, uh, in front of Ashish, but he remembers now that there's legions of angels around him all the time and that God would have delivered him had he just stood his ground. Again, I'm quick to point out that the realization of these angels didn't deliver David from trouble, but he knew he'd be delivered through it. Again, no one knew better than David that he had been anointed king. He wasn't king, and so he would be king. And so the Lord, uh, you know, we don't all have that kind of a promise, but David did. And it was an unconditional promise. It wasn't one of those things where God could say, you know, I've changed my mind. You're not going to be king after all. So David... uh, He should have just hung in there. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. The thing I like most about cooking is tasting food along the way. Most of the time, I'm not hungry by the time the meal is served. And there's not much left to the meal either. But anyway, good stuff. As we walk with Jesus, we get tastes of the feast that awaits us at his coming. Non-believers cannot see that the Lord is good. They see him as evil or neutral at best. We know that he is not. And here's a little, uh, it might help you when you're talking to unbelievers, because, you know, you get tongue-tied, you think, how can I explain the whole Bible? When people are saying God is evil or why doesn't God do something, how can I explain the whole Bible? How am I going to approach this? Just remember, sin, the Savior, salvation. And, and those thoughts, those like bullet points, I guess, you can talk about sin. Man brought sin into the world, and the world is now, you know, dying. God sent a savior into the world and now you can be saved. God's long suffering waits. And so um, just remember that. So we know what's going on. Non-believers don't. Verse nine, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger. Those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. The young lions here are lions. They're Asiatic lions. David was making a comparison from the natural world. It's similar to when Jesus commented about how much more God cares for you than the sparrows. And so David is saying, uh, you know, you look at the lions, the beasts in nature, they sometimes want, but Christians, uh, believers, never want. Uh, Those who seek the Lord is another name for believers. 
They shall not want is explained in verse 10 as not lacking any good thing. And so it's not that you don't, it's not that you, um, everything you want, you get. It's that you don't lack any good thing that God has for you. And by good, of course, we understand that all things, both good and bad, work together for good. There was an especially evil orc in the Lord of the Rings, the two towers. As the orc forces approached Gondor to attack, Gothmog said, fear, the city is rank with it. This is a season rank with fear. The entire world is rank with fear. It's unprecedented in, one, in many ways. A.W. Tozer said, a fearful world needs a fearless church. You can be delivered from your fears. Talk to the Lord. He hears you. Fear God rather than man. Believe God. Remember who you are. And then we individually and corporately can be that fearless church that the world needs right now. You can deliver hope to those who fear. If you're like me at this point, you're ready for the precise steps you must take to overcome your fear. We always want to do something as if it were up to us to live up to God's standards without his help. Uh, we approach the Bible the way we approach other books. and We think, okay, this is the standard and, this is how, and now here's how I get to that standard. But David doesn't provide a how-to. He describes what you act like as a believer and he compares you to non-believers who have no power to walk with the Lord. And so verse 11, he says, come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And so the madman was gone and David was restored to teach others to fear God rather than man. And then he tells you what that is in verses 12 through 15. He says, who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil. Keep your lips from speaking to see. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. Now, I want to read that because we have logical minds. I want to say that verses 12, 13, and 14 are points one, two, and three, and then they will result in you being righteous in verse 15. But we really need to start in verse 15. The righteous is a term for believers. In the Bible, we read that you believe God and he declares you righteous. It's how God saved people before Christ came. It is how God saves people after Christ came. We read of Abraham, what? He believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. He wasn't made righteous. He, he didn't become a sinless individual at that point, but because of his belief, God could consider him righteous and having a right standing. Because Jesus became our substitute on the cross, God can remain just and also be the justifier of those who believe. He can declare us righteous. The righteous man or woman is transformed day by day by yielding to the Holy Spirit. We cry out to the Lord knowing that he hears us and we cooperate with him. And then the righteous man or woman looks and acts like the description in verses 12 through 14. We don't do these things to become righteous. We are declared righteous and we are enabled to do those things. And so if, you know, in my mind, we should start with verse 15 and then work it out. So God declares you righteous because you believe him. And then he begins to work that out. We call that sanctification until one day you're with him. Glorification. Now, David talks about two ways of life. Verse 16, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. 
The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Cut off remembrance doesn't mean non-believers are forgotten the moment they die. That's just not true. But it's a euphemism for their death and destiny. It will be as if they never lived in terms of eternity because they won't be with us in heaven. While believers enjoy the radiant presence of God in eternity, non-believers will be confined to outer darkness and conscious torment in the lake of fire. The righteous can be certain God hears them. He will deliver you out of all your troubles. Uh, if not now, then finally, ultimately. Your hope is in that final deliverance, and that is something that will help you overcome your temporary fears. A title can sometimes be all you need. You might not have to read the book. This wouldn't work for To Kill a Mockingbird, of course. Uh, it reads like a how-to manual, right? But Dave Hunt, wonderful Christian brother who's home with the Lord now, uh, Dave wrote one book called Whatever Happened to Heaven? And, and really, it's a great book to read, but that's all you need to know. It immediately communicates that believers have become less heavenly-minded. The less heavenly-minded you are, it follows that you have a more worldly mind. That means the things of this world become more your prerogative. And that is a formula for fear. By worldly, I'm not talking about sinful or evil. I'm just talking about caring more for the things of the world. And you see uh, how much of the fear in our world today is fueled by the fact that the, the cares of the world are so prominent with people. I mean, this rush on toilet paper is driving me crazy trying to figure out. People are so afraid they're not going to have toilet paper, they become hoarders. And I'm not saying that's a worldly mindset. I bought toilet paper this morning, you know, but I needed toilet paper, you know, that kind of a thing. And so, but it's just a, tip, it's a funny example, but I think you know what I mean. The world is afraid right now. And it's afraid because of all the material things that are crumbling and crashing and people wanting to know where their next meal is going to come from and things like that. And, and a heavenly mindset knowing that you're beloved of the Lord, that God definitely has taken charge of your life and of the world and his, his providence will keep his promises to you, uh, that will overcome your fear. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Again, thinking of David in the cave surrounded by these 400 men, giving them this psalm, this verse reads like an Old Testament altar call. It's fascinating. He preached to them in this psalm and probably uh, with other words as well. He let them know God was near and that they could therefore have a relationship with him. Broken and contrite, they could choose the Lord. That's great. So David's been talking and, hey, you can be delivered from your fear. And these guys were afraid. Now, they had come out to David in this cave, right? Prompted by the Holy Spirit. But they were still, some of them were in debt, meaning people were after them. A lot of them were fugitives. And so they still had fear. And so David said, hey, you don't need to have fear. The Lord is near you. Do you have a broken heart? Do you have a contrite spirit? Turn to the Lord, basically, is what he was saying. What's the very first thing you should tell a new believer? Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. This wouldn't really come to mind. You know, let's say you're a worker at a Christian concert, one of the Harvest Crusades, you're one of the counselors, and you get, you know, one-on-one -on -one with a new convert, a new believer. 
and they're so excited. They've been weeping. God just transformed their lives. And you lay your hand on them and says, hey, brother, sister, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord will deliver you out of them all. What just happened? What do you, what do you mean afflictions? And, and what, do you, what do you mean many? The Apostle Paul, when Ananias went to see him and lay hands on him, he said the Lord told him to tell him how great trouble and adversity he must suffer on behalf of my name. And it's true. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, that's a formula. The first thing you have to tell somebody is that there'll be trouble. Uh, but, you know, we need to talk to people and talk to each other and talk to ourselves about the fact that in the world you will have tribulation. But we can still be of good cheer because God has overcome the world. So this is a real and honest, full of hope declaration. He guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Well, the apostles applied this to Jesus' experience on the cross. And that's what makes this a messianic psalm. Did David know? Did his men know? Well, let's think about it for a minute. They knew this was not a promise for them to claim. I'm sure many of them had experienced broken bones or they knew folks whose bones suffered breaks. Any thoughtful person would conclude this was something beyond their own experience. Whether they knew it was about the Messiah or not, I can't say. But it's an alert in the middle. Because, you know, David's, of course, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he knows that. It's something he doesn't understand and his men don't understand. It must point forward to something that, he, that has not been revealed as yet. We know that it's the Savior, Jesus, who on the cross, normally a crucified man would have his bones broken, his legs broken, so that he quit struggling to breathe. That's how they uh, affected death. But because Jesus had already given up his spirit, they didn't do that. Not a bone of his body was broken. And so at least alerts them that there is something more going on and that there's a bigger, larger plan that they are somehow a part of. Evil shall slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. Again, very altar callish. Do you want to remain condemned or will you choose to believe God and not be condemned? What a stunning, you know, kind of end. You know, some altar calls, they go on for a while. I'm not criticizing them. They're good. Give the first appeal, then another appeal. This is like a second and last appeal saying, Hey, if you don't believe God, you're headed for eternal condemnation. But if you do, you'll never be condemned. Long lines, hoarding, aggressive behavior. If Gothmog was here, he would say fear. The world is rank with it. But God can deliver you from all your fears. And then once he does, you can give others hope that he will deliver them from their fears as well. And that's kind of the posture that we want to take in these unusual times.